Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was 10 years after Hear Me Calling, because I've got the brilliant pleasure to welcome Rick Lee to the Strange Brew Podcast. Uh, welcome, Rick. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. I'm uh, enjoying talking to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a brilliant pleasure to do that, especially as you have a, a new book out, From Headstocks to Woodstock. Um, doesn't that, that take you back from your when you were born, your early days in... Uh, Mansfield, a coal, coal mining town in the sort of north of England, right up to that pivotal moment at Woodstock with 10 years after? Yes, sir, it does. Why was it that you kind of decided to cut things off at Woodstock? It, I mean, it, the story does have that um, almost a, a great arc of um, someone who comes from relatively humble beginnings to to almost worldwide stardom with Woodstock. Well, it, it was worldwide stardom after the movie came out, for sure. Uh, in 90, the movie was out in 1970, a year after the festival. Why did I stop then? Well, because Woodstock was the high. I was originally going to write all the way through mm. from beginning to end, but it's a it's a mammoth task. Uh, I have actually started writing some stuff uh, for post Woodstock, but whether I'll ever get that finished, I don't know. But um, yeah, I finished it there, as I said, because the, the, it, it's a high. Uh, it was the pinnacle of the of the band's. Uh, career i think and it's certainly the film anyway put us on on the world stage you know it was, it was incredible as well as musical history it's um social history uh, you know vividly describes you know growing up in in the 50s into the late 60s your your sort of first job in the the civil service and and kind of very amusing describing life, life <laughs> in, in there the early times in um you know, your first groups moving into the, the band that became 10 years after? Yeah, I mean, um, I, as you say, I, I was uh, we were playing together, uh, the first band, which was the uh, Ricky Storm and the Stormcats. I think we were, we were all still at school at that point. And Jeff, the singer, was, was actually, he was head boy at the, the major drama school in, in Mansfield. We were, every chance we could get, we were playing uh, youth clubs and places like that. And then some, some other guy in another local band said, oh, you're crazy, you want to be playing in the pub, so you know, you'll get paid more money, you'll go buy better gear and everything. So we started, without telling our parents, we started playing in the, in the pubs as well. And uh, technically speaking, we shouldn't have been there because we were too young, but um, Jeff and uh, we had a manager then called Harry, mm. and they, they basically used to um, go there and, and they would buy beer for us and stuff and then give it to us after after they got it away from the bar. Yeah. Then we progressed to, um, well, we actually returned professionally in 1964. And by that time, we changed our name to the Mansfields and we'd become a four-piece. Yeah. We were originally a five-piece. 
uh, with Stu Lane and Keith Williams and Mick Hodgkinson. And we started to move further afield. We would, would move from, mm. played from Mansfield. We went up to Leeds, uh, played in Nottingham a lot, obviously, which was next door to Mansfield, and so on. And there was another band in the area called the Jaybirds, who were known as the biggest sounding trio in the, in the country. And that was Alvin Lee, Leo Lyons, and a guy called Dave Quitmeyer. And Dave became my mentor. I went to him for some lessons mm. after we played a gig together. He really became my mentor. And unbeknownst to me, he was actually sort of schooling me to take over his role in, in, in the Jaybirds. He wanted to quit and get married. Um, so I did an audition with the guys. I was nervous as hell. But I, but I passed the audition and, and got offered the job. And that's how I met up with with, uh, with Alvin and Leo. And then about, I think it was a year later, maybe a little bit longer, Chick uh, Churchill joined us. And, and then, then you had... Well, we ended up as the backing band for the Ivy League, who had had uh, several hit records at that time. And they had a number one record, actually, with a song called Tossing and Turning. And we did a lot of cabaret work with them and and, a lot, and, and we learned a lot in the recording studios, too, with them. And Clem Cassini, who I believe you talked to a few weeks ago. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Clem was, um, was, a, was very much a, a mentor in the recording uh, studios for me. He, he was teaching me tricks like putting a... A cigarette, an empty cigarette packet with a with some kind of weight in it onto the snare drum to get a, a, a sort of a deader sound. In, in that period in time, the the engineers and the recordings were were featuring. I mean, nowadays you record drums as they are. Yeah. In those days, there was a lot of damping going on, as they called it. You know, damping down the sound, putting uh, putting tape on the tom heads, and in some cases, putting tape underneath the masking tape. Actually, it was. Underneath, underneath the symbols, so they didn't ring on too much. So you got a, generally a, a sort of much deader sort of sound. Uh, and Clem was very instrumental in showing me those tricks. He he showed me also for holding tempo. Uh, it, the hardest thing is holding tempo in a slow song. Mm. Fast songs are, are quite easy because all the beats are fairly close together. So you you know the, the tempo will generally stay steadier. Um, but in a slow song, when there's a large gap between the beats. You, you really have to hold it down. And Clem showed me this trick of, of using, like beating twice as many beats on the, um, on the hi-hat, but, but not, not that anybody could hear it, just tapping it with the, with the heel of your, of your foot to me. And we did actually do some sessions together. The Ivy League did one track. Sorry, no, it was the Flower Pop Men. We did a session with the Flower Pop Men. They had a couple of hits. And they wanted two drummers on it. Um, and so Clem and I did the, did the session together, and then we did some radio broadcasts together as well. And uh, I saw Clem actually a couple of years back in London at some drum mm. thing. Still good friends, you know. He's, he's he's a good man. And I think one of those tracks that did get released that you featured on, and I think also featured Clem, was "A Walk in the Sky." Yes, um, that that would be. Um, Let's go to San Francisco. I think was their first hit. Mm. On right, yes, "Walk in the Sky" was the second. Yeah. yeah, the follow-up. It, it was indeed, yes. Yeah. Would it would it be right to say that as well as kind of the influence that Clem had and, you know, the support that he had, that actually the Jaybirds back in the Ivy League for approximately two years kind of kept the group going financially? Uh, kept us going financially, for sure, mm. yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the reason that Clem and the other guys, Mickey and I forgot the bass player's name, but they... They decided they wanted to stay in London and do more session work. And if they were going out on the road, they were going to lose that. 
and session work in those days was, was very lucrative. Mm. So, so they basically that's why they were quitting the Ivy League. Mm. Uh, and an agent saw us on a TV clip we did to promote a show that we were star, um, not starring in, but performing in in, in London. And uh, and he thought we'd be ideal for, for them. And, and yes, and it worked out well. We, we were with them for two years, as you say. In that period with the Ivy League, were you still playing any gigs as the Jaybirds? Yeah, there were one or two. We 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 still had outstanding contracts on things in Nottingham, so we we went back and did stuff like that at the weekends. That was more when we were in the, when when we were in the play, just before we joined the Ivy League. Ah, yeah. Because when we worked with the Ivy League, um, you we were doing a week at a time in the north of England, northeast actually. Uh, you know, Newcastle, Sunderland, and all around there, and we would get in there on a Sunday, set up the gear. And there were two clubs that were probably maximum 10 miles apart. So we would, um, I, I had two drum kits at that point. Um, to then got time to carry, pack one up and move the other, move, sorry, move it to the second venue. So uh, all I did was take a snare drum and the cymbals across to the second venue. And the first show would, I think it was probably eight o'clock at night. And the second show would be a midnight show or 11 o'clock even. And so we would finish the first um, the first house and then dash across to the other the other club to do the second house. Yeah, yeah I mean, but we were there for a week. We, we would have uh, like a local B and B or a guest house where we stayed. Um, so it was it, it was pretty relaxed, you know, apart from the actual evening when you when you had to do the the, the double.
Our next song is Help Me from the debut 10 years after um, 1967. How did you make that leap from, obviously, I think the the work with uh, the Ivy League uh, sort of dried up. How, how, then you kind of were, were more focused on the Jaybirds, which, you know, renamed 10 years after. How did you make that transition into, well, a, a band ultimately who got signed to uh, D-Ram stroke uh, Decker? Yeah, well, we... Actually, I mean, Alvin and Leo's set before we joined the um, before we joined the Ivy League was was peppered with um, you know blues blues classics. Uh, right. We used to do "I Got a Woman" by uh, Ray Charles. Um, "Help Me, Baby" was was one of the classics. We did uh, "Bo Diddley," the track "Bo Diddley," and mm. um, that was Alvin's major solo at that point, um, and that would last about ten or twelve minutes long. So those songs were already in the repertoire, yeah. ready for when, when I mean, not knowingly, but when we became 10 years after. And we actually, um, I'm just trying to think, yeah, we, we did an audition, actually. We, 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 were, we were living in, um, in a place called the Madison Hotel in Sussex Gardens in London, which is where a lot of the bands were staying. Mm. And uh, when I initially joined the, the band and we went there, uh, there were, the three of us were sharing the room. There was me, Leo and Alvin in the same room and we were paying 25 shillings a week for, for the rent of the room. Uh, 25 shillings was, was what, what would that be? That would be about one pound, one pound five P or, or so for a whole week for three of us. So that gives you an idea of the, uh, hmm. of the, of the scale of the money in those days. We did an audition actually in one of the bedrooms, a different one for the one we were staying in. Um, a guy who was, apparently was a talent scout for Ireland Records at the time, and we played for him in this uh, in this bedroom. Huh. And needless to say, he didn't sign us, you know, because it would be very difficult to tell what we were doing in, in the bedroom there. Huh. So uh, Leo knew a guy called Tony Burfield, who subsequently became a, a blogger for A um, and uh, M Records. And gave Christopher his number one with Lady in Red. And Tony was an agent at that time, was working for the Morris King Agency. And Leo kept pestering him to give us a gig. Yeah. And Tony said, "Well, I'll, I'll put you on at the Speakeasy in uh, in London." That was a, a sort of late night drinking eating club that the music business used. That you know the bands used. Yeah, very famous. Yeah. Mm. And we played there. There was there was hardly anybody there. Tony said, well, yeah, you're right. I aren't really into uh, blues bands, you know. Hmm. But I know a bloke in Manchester who is. Uh, give me a call tomorrow, Leo, and I'll, I'll put you in touch. So um, Leo called this guy, and the guy's name was Chris Wright, and he was working in an agency called the Ian Hamilton Agency. Hmm. Um, and he was a booker, and he was also... <clears throat> a lot of the bookers in that agency also sort of did part-time management on, on bands that they were trying to break. Chris was looking after this band called Cocker Hoop, who had a, a, a very, very good uh, blues singer. Mm. Uh, so anyway, we went up to Manchester. It cost us probably all the money we had in our pockets getting there because we, had, we we'd stopped at fill up with fuel at Luton, and uh, we found out we'd, we'd got a burst tyre. And uh, the guys looked at it, and they said, well, you can't go anywhere on that. That tyre is absolutely naked. You've got to get a new one. So we'd buy a new tyre and put it on. And Alvin was all for going back to London at that point, but the rest of us persuaded him to carry on. We got to Manchester. We played this uh, this gig for Chris Wright in a, in a pretty busy club there. 
and after we finished, he, he came and had a chat with us, and he said, "Well, yeah, he said you're a pretty good band, um, so I, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to um, back this singer." Mm. So we said, "Well, we've just done all that with the Ivy League. It's not what we want to do. We want to crack it on our own." So there was a friend of his who was a partner in the in the club with him, and he said, "Well, I think the band's brilliant." He said, "I think you're going to you're going to make it big," and. Um, he said, what are you doing in the summer? So we said, well, nothing. We had nothing in the book. You know, we were looking at a complete blank date sheet. He said, well, we've got a place down in Cornwall. He said, you, you, you could come down and play. It's a couple of pubs we have down there. He said, and uh, bring sleeping bags. You can sleep on the floor in the pub, mm. <laughs> upstairs in the pub, and then you can play a couple of sets. Yeah. We can't pay you much. We, we'll probably give you a tenner a day, which was actually quite a lot of money, really, when you think about it. Um, but we'll feed you, we'll give you breakfast and you can have a, a meal in the evening and then and then yeah. play. What do you think? And we said, oh, yeah, absolutely, fantastic, we'll do it because we have nothing else, you know, the only offer we had. So Chris Wright is listening to this guy singing our praises and he said, um, have you guys guys eaten today? So well, well, not since lunchtime, you know, and this was sort of getting on for 11 o'clock at night. Oh, it must have been later, I think. And we packed the van and we're getting ready to go back to London. And he said, well, look, there's a wimpy bar over the road. Let's let's go there and, and we can. I'll, I'll buy you a meal and we can have a chat. Mm. So he was still trying to sell us on the idea of backing this um, this blues singer. And we finally said, well, no, we, it's not what we want to do. We're, we're, we're going to take our chances. Oh. 
help me breathe Oh Lord, oh Lord, I can't do it by myself Help me baby, I need somebody, need somebody to help me girl Please help me Help me be I've got quite the found so somebody else I need it And in fact, Leo had managed to get us an audition at the Marquee Club in London, which was the <clears throat> where the burgeoning blues boom was well starting to happen. It wasn't a boom at that point. And um, <clears throat> the Rolling Stones were playing there as support to Alexis Corner and Cyril. Um, Is it Cyril Davis? Cyril Davis, thank you. Um, they were playing there, and the, the Stones were actually becoming more popular than, than Alexis hmm. and, uh, and Cyril. And they were bringing it you know, bringing in a lot of people. And there is a story that, that um, Alexis has to leave, you know, to stop coming because he was concerned about the popularity. I don't know how true mm. that is. It's just a bit of hearsay that I picked up. Mm. Um, the the stars then moved um, and played the, um, the Ricky Chick Club in southwest London. So Leo had managed to set up this audition through Jack, uh, Jack Barry, to play at the Marquee. So we said to Chris, well, look, if that doesn't work out, then we'll reconsider the thing with your blues band. But until then, we're uh, we're, we're going to plow on. So we went to do the audition. It was um, one evening about six o'clock, I think it was. Um, I was working in, in a, a, a gallery on Brompton Road, mm. uh, Crane Carbon Gallery. They sort of broke young painters and artists. And uh, I said I needed to leave early for this audition. And they said, well, you can go, provided you get all these invitations out for for um, a launch for this artist. Mm. So I got all these invitations, stuck them in envelopes. So they didn't have anything to seal the envelopes down with. So I used to, I had to lick every envelope. And I mean, <laughs> every time I tell the story, I can still taste that that bloody glue on, on the yeah. envelopes. Yeah. Anyway, I got it got it done, and arrived. Um, in the, the nick of time at the, at the marquee and set up the kit, you know, and, uh, and Jack said, what, what are you going to play? So we said, well, we don't know him. We haven't thought it. You got any ideas? So Jack said, well, John G, who was the manager of the club and who was going to be the man who said yes or no. Uh, he said, he's a big jazz fan and he's a big fan of Sinatra's. And he said, have you got anything that's a bit sort of jazzy? And, um, we said, yeah, we have. We, we, we do, uh, Woodchopper's Ball, which was, uh, Woody Herman's song. Mm. And uh, in, in, instrumental, sorry. We'd, we'd used it. Alvin had come up with the idea. We needed something to play the Ivy League off stage before they came back on for their encore. And so we did this sort of Fast and Furious version of um, 
of uh, Woodchopper's Ball. <clears throat> and the, the original is, is sort of down, that speed. And we do it. And so um, we played that. And John G came, was walking in at the time we started. And um, after we finished, he was beaming all over his face. And uh, we said, would you like to hear some more? So he said, no, any band that can play my kind of music in that style, it's fine with me. I'll give you a date straight away if you give me a call tomorrow. And uh, he gave us a, a, an interval spot with the Bonzo Dog Doodah band hmm. uh, on a Sunday evening. And the club at that time was still quite, not both feet, but was certainly one foot in the jazz area, you know. Hmm. Yeah, and, and so the audiences would applaud after every solo in the songs. So after every one of Alvin's solos, he'd get applause. After Chick did a solo, there was applause for that, you know. Uh, which is exactly what they did in the jazz clubs at the time. And so mostly, and most of the time, the audience was seated. But we did, we got a standing ovation at the end of the, of the set. We only did, I think, half an hour, 45 minutes. And it was fantastic. We went down the storm. So they gave us more gigs at the marquee, supporting all sorts of people. Uh, I think John Lee Hooker was one of the, one of the actually supporters there. Anyway, we did a lot of those. And eventually, um, we were getting, very popular, and they gave us a, a Friday night blues night. They created a blues night. Mm. We played there once a fortnight, and then we had people supporting us, which was kind of nice. And gradually, the popularity built. And uh, the marquee also put on, they were in, in conjunction with the National Jazz Federation. Um, they put on festivals, and they, they did the Windsor Blues and Jazz Festival. And we were invited to play that. And again, we went down a storm there. We got we got a standing ovation with uh, however many people it was there. It was quite a, quite a big crowd, I think, a few thousand anyway. And um, Mike Vernon happened to be in the audience. Mm. Mike Vernon was, was John Mayall's producer, staff producer at Decca. Yeah. And Mike came up to us and said, I'd really like to sign you guys. And we said, great. So Chris then negotiated the deal with Decca. Ironic, actually, because we'd done an audition for Decca uh, several months before that and failed it. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd also done an audition for the um, for the BBC. In those days, the BBC did auditions too. Uh-huh. And uh, we'd, we'd auditioned to do stuff for the BBC, and we failed that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think because probably in a funny sort of way, we weren't quite sure of where we were going at that point. So we were a bit in sort of no man's land, you know. And it, it was only, I think, really because of the, the fact that we had to develop stuff for the marquee shows that we began to get the set together and we started to put in things like Help Me Baby, as you say, mm. and obviously Woodchopper's Ball and, and all those things, and, and eventually Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, mm. stuff like that. And then they got developed on stage more and more. We, When we went to America, we, we started jamming a lot, and so those numbers became extended.
And that debut album, 10 Years After Album, has, has got that great mix of predominantly sort of blues, your own versions of, of some of those brilliant blues tracks, as well as some original material, um, again, predominantly by... What was your role, you know, the band's role in, 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 in tracks that were, were suggested and brought? Well, it, it was bizarre, actually, because Alvin... He did. He began writing some stuff, which uh, a lot of it, if you listen to, are fairly straightforward um, takes of, of 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 existing songs, you know. Mm. But I mean, that was the thing with blues anyway in those days, you know. I mean, um, you know, John Lee Hooker and Sonny Boy Robinson and Muddy Waters and those guys. There would be songs that you would hear, and, and, and one of them could be the other one's song, if you get my drift. Um, yeah. So you know that, the, the, and I, I know that. Well, certainly, Chick and I, and I, and I think to a degree, Leo, we wanted to try and make them a little bit different, give them a bit of a twist. Yeah. I think it was Mike Vernon that actually got Alvin into writing the stuff for the album because we didn't. Basically, that album, that first album was our live stage set done in a studio. Yeah. I mean, there's a track on there called "Don't Want You Woman." Which is a little acoustic blues, which is is um, mm. is Alvin's take on a on a big Bill Brunsey track. You know, it's it's it's, it's his, if you like, a tribute to Brunsey. He was a big Brunsey fan, and in fact, I believe it was Brunsey uh, was playing in um, in uh, Nottingham one night, and Alvin's uh, when Alvin's very young. And Alvin's parents used to go to the to the blues uh, shows and things. The club, there were club shows, and they invited him back one night for a drink. And so uh, he was sitting in the living room playing stuff on his acoustic guitar, and Alvin was just sitting there completely gobsmacked. You know, um, this young young lad wanted to play guitar, could play a few jazz chords, uh, hmm. sitting listening to this, this sort of blues giant. You know, and and that stayed with him all the time. I think you know he always had that. Um, that hankering and that amazing feel to playing those things, but as far as the writing went, um, we all said, "Well, we ought to be, we all ought to be involved in this, you know, because we all put in our ten pennies to make it what it is." Yeah. And he said, "Oh no, the the the, uh, the, the writing is um, is the, the melody and the chords, you know. There's no copyright in the riff and so on and so forth." And he said, "In any way, I can't, I can't sing." other people's lyrics, you know. And I think, well, that's a bit strange because you're doing Help Me Baby. <laughs> you're doing, um, I Can't Keep From Crying Sometimes. <laughs> you're doing um, uh, I Want to Know. Anyway, basically it carried on like that and um, and Alvin picked up all the writing stuff. But, I mean, looking back on it, he's left a fine heritage for us and we're still playing those songs. So I have I have no, no gripe with that in a, in, in a sense. Because uh, certainly Chick and I are still making a, a good living from it. Don't call 
call me baby I don't think it's kind Well I got another woman Don't intend to leave her behind Don't call me baby Call me on the phone Don't call me baby Call me on the phone If you wanna be kind of me girl In 1968, there's that great 10 years yep. after live album, Undead. Whose idea was it to release a live album in, at that time? Well, what happened was we were actually working on, on Stonehenge, or what was to be Stonehenge, hmm. but as a studio album. Um, but by that time, events had overtaken us a little bit because uh, Bill Graham in America, who's the promoter of the Fillmore West in San Francisco, had sent a telegram to Chris Ryan and invited us to play at his venue. I think the phrase was, if you're ever in America, please come and play at my venue. So it's like, yeah, well, of course, yeah, we'll be in America next week. <laughs> no problem. Um, but that did start Chris Wright then trying to find a way of getting us to America. And yeah. consequently, Stonehenge wasn't going to be ready. And we were going to need... We'd, the first album, right. London Records, was, was, the De was Decker's American album. And, and London, I think, if they hadn't, they were about to put out the 10 years after album, the first album. So hmm. they said, but we could, do with, we could do with something else, you know, to follow up with when you, when you actually hit the shores. So we, we came up with the idea, well, we need to do a live album. And so Undead is the opposite of, of live, if you like, or is, is another word for live. And so we went in and, and basically recorded a lot of the stuff we'd already recorded on the first album. Uh, with some additional stuff, um, which up as well, I think <coughs> we had done a studio version of it, but we didn't. We didn't put it on the album. Like I think we weren't too happy with it. So we we went to a place called Clute's Cleek, which is the railway. is a room above the railway hotel uh, in West Hampstead, which was right next door to Decca Studios. And previously, John Mayall, I think, had made one album, if not two, by taking cables over the roof from the Decker Studios to the microphones in Clutes and then back in, you know, fed them into the mixing desk in in, um, in the Decker Studios. And so that's what we did. And the 
Roy Baker, Roy, uh, as he became Roy Thomas Baker later, producer and engineer of Queen. Oh, yeah. Roy was an amazing engineer, actually. Uh, and we couldn't get... To, Studio 2 was the one we normally recorded in. Um, but Studio 2 was being used by somebody else. So uh, Roy and Pete uh, Rins, Rinstead, I think his name was, or Rinstead, the, the uh, tape operator, that tape operator in those days, it was all done on tape, pulled the desk from one of the other studios into the canteen, which is at the back of the Decker Studios, and set it up there and then ran the cables over the roof <laughs> to um, into the, to the room in Clute's, uh, there was Clute's Cleek, sorry, in the railway hotel, and set everything up and, and recorded as, and obviously dragged a, a tape machine into, into the um, canteen as well. And that's how that, that album was recorded. I think the room held, it certainly held 150 people. It might have been a bit more, but it wasn't an awfully large room. But that night, it was absolutely packed. I mean, the minute anybody mentions that there's a recording, people want to go. They want to be there, you know, be on the recording. And it was a fabulous, fabulous evening. But God, mm. it was hot. Mm. You know, it was ridiculously hot. And God forbid if there'd been any kind of fire or anything, I don't think any of us would have got out. Yeah. It was um it was up this creaky staircase. Uh, and you got to the top of the staircase and you made a left into the room we were in and mm. the other then there was turned right and there was a room there which was the bar. But you know, if if hundred and fifty or two hundred people had tried to get out of there in a hurry, it would have been hell. Um but that was in those days that was health and safety. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was was technically out of the window. But yeah, so so we did that, and um, uh, I, by that time I was doing the drum solo. Uh, Alvin had said, "You know, it's time you did a drum solo." Because yeah. Dave Quickmire had always done an amazing solo with, with the Jaybirds, um, and in fact, one one time way back, uh, he and I did a sort of mm. solo duet, uh, which was rather good, um, where we played like a Dave devised it, and we played like a unison thing, and then we broke off into four bar exchanges. And then stretched it mm -hmm. to eight by exchanges and so on, and then back to the unison. Um, it's, I remember doing that it was in, in Mansfield in, a, in a, a, it's an outdoor event um, at the Miners Miners Welfare um, Centre um, in Mansfield. So that I'd had a taste of doing a solo, but not actually on my own, as it were. Um, but I had developed it to a degree with um, with the gigs at the Marquee. Mm. Um, so I did that the solo uh, that night, and it's on the on on Undead. It was called Shantung Cabbage, but uh, the beginning was Alvin. I, I didn't really know how to start it, and Alvin said, "Oh, we, we can we can do summertime." You know, I I played what I wanted to play on the kit. I played it to Alvin, and he said, "Oh, I, I can play summertime over the top of that." Mm. So we did all this sort of bloopy bloopy stuff, and then went into a swing version of uh, of summertime. You know, the Porgy and Best song. And then the solo part, uh, which is where I just took off around the kit, was mm. called Shamsam Cabbage. And I think that was because I'd read, I'd read a title of a book somewhere, or, or maybe it was a Chinese dish. <laughs> I can't remember. Hey, we'd like to feature our young, handsome, tall, dark drummer now, Mr. Rick Lee from Stoke Newington. Uh, in a number called Summertime. <laughs> Summertime. 
appreciation. We don't thank you for coming along and joining in the spirit of the fun. <laughs> you may all consider yourself recording artists of the night. And you mentioned uh, around that period of recording Undead, you were also working on Stonehenge. And obviously that album also features a drum solo, Free Blind Mice. Yeah. Interesting the way that you use the drums as almost a, a melodic instrument there. Well, Three Blind Mice, the title. Yeah. We made our first trip to America. We're playing all the songs that we've just been talking about. And the the representative of um, London Records on the West Coast was a guy called Jeff Traeger. And Jeff said, tomorrow morning, guys, I'm going to pick you up and uh, we're going to go to the distributor's warehouse. He said, I've got, to, I've got to go and talk to them and one thing or another about your albums. He said, but if you come with me, you can pick out a few of our, few albums that you might like. So I I went crazy there, you know, um, Buddy Rich albums. Oh, yeah, could I have that. Uh, I spotted Art Blakey, and Art Blakey's album was called Three Blind Mice. And so when we got back to England and we were working on Stonehenge and it became apparent we were all going to do one track each, I thought, oh, I know, I'll, I'll have a go at Three Blind Mice. Now, Blakey actually didn't play the melodic thing that I did. Right. Uh, I think it was just a title, or it may have been a song that was called Three Blind Mice, but it wasn't It wasn't the tune and the nursery rhyme that we all know, which is what I did. And I tried to, as you said, try to make the tune on the, on the kit, and I tuned the drums carefully to get that sound. And funny enough, I mean, occasionally, just for a laugh, I slip, it, I slip a bit of it into the solo I'm doing now. And what I did was I also added some timpani on the end of it. And we recorded me running down the corridor as if I was the, the farmer's wife with a carving knife. And then there was this sort of slashing sound right at the end of it. Um, as I said earlier, unbeknown to me, Joe Morello had recorded a track called Shortening Bread. I don't know if you remember that song. Oh, yeah. Ma- Mama's little baby got shortening, yeah. shortening, Mama's little baby got shortening bread. And he'd done that melodically on, on, on the drums, which was fabulous. Um, so I, I kind of did that without the knowledge of, of, of his version of Shortening Bread. But um, it's kind of nice that we were both thinking in the same ways, if you like, because Morello was a hero of mine as well. So that's how all that came together. spoken to these brilliant drummers and obviously you're, you're in that ilk thank you i've asked them about the, you know what how they describe their styles and you can tell drummer to drummer they've got their own unique sound what was the sound that and, and style that you aim for well it was as i say well we all came out of the jazz influence you know i'm not sure about carl so much no but certainly pete yeah absolutely and pete, pete still has does mm. 
one one foot in jazz, you know. Mm. And I did. I mean, as I mentioned those drummers earlier, you know, Buddy Rich, Blakey, yeah. Morello, um, Elvin Jones, you know, all those guys. I was madly into through through actually Dave Quickmire's influence, yeah. you know. Um, I used to say, well, I think Ringo Starr's a good drummer. Nah, nah, nah. You want to <laughs> listen to this guy, you know? And he 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 was the first guy to play me Joe Morello. Actually, there was an e, an EP called Sounds of the Loop. And uh, we used to play that endlessly when I went for a drum lesson. We used to, in fact, the lessons became really a, a chat session with a cup of tea and listening to to other drummers. You know, mm. I conceived the way I played in those early days when we were playing quite jazzy things. Uh, was that like in a funny sort of way? The the bass drum was working with Leo's bass, yeah, and the the the, the left hand and the right hand to a degree were were more working with the melodic instruments, you know, both Chick and and Alvin. That's how I used to conceive what I was doing. And later, by actually by the time we got to Stonehenge, we we were quite experimental then compared to how we had been before uh, with tracks like No Title and then Chick's rhythm playing on, on, on the organ is second to none. And and he he so he and I would end up playing. I, I would try and emulate some of some of the things that he was doing with with the left hand, playing little melodic phrases with my left hand around the kit. And this is most apparent um, on the um, live at the Fillmore East album, which we recorded in 1969 at, at Fillmore East in New York. And also. Uh, or if you listen to I Can't Keep From Crying Sometimes, that the version of that there, there are phrases that Alvin's doing on, on, on the guitar, and I join in with him and start emulating what he's doing melodically. So, so that was my, that's my, was my whole concept in those days of, of, of how to play with TYA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
You mentioned this song uh, briefly earlier as a, a track that you made your own live. Uh, Good morning, little skill girl. You, as, as a band and as a unit, your version of that Sonny Boy Williamson track has such power. Yeah, um, Armin came up was was noodling around with that the riff for a while, and uh, and we took it. The original version is a, is a sort of a swing shuffle thing. Good morning, school girl. That's that's the original version. We changed it and made it. And I'm thinking, how can I make this different, you know, with this riff, and how can I make it stronger? And so what I do is I actually play the riff on the bass drum. So you've got dum 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 bosh bosh you know on the cymbals on the second part and i also try and put a dynamic to it so i play close hi-hat and and play on that rhythm and then when we get to the second verse i kick it up and start playing uh, a half open hi-hat and i'm putting crash cymbals in which i've not done in the first verse and so i'm, I'm trying to get a build in it all the time uh, and then, consequently, after that, I go to the ride symbol and, and generally, roughly speaking, making more noise. <laughs> but, you know, trying to back up what Alvin and Chick and Leo are doing with that riff and just piling on the pressure, mm. which is also very true of uh, Help Me Baby. Yeah. It's the same same sort of idea. Help Me Baby starts off very, very quiet. And then you get to the second verse where you you got to help me, baby. Bah! Just great big hit, you know. And then I used to play, again, I played the rhythm of that. Um, it's slower than that, actually. But I actually play that pattern with the bass drum as well. So I, I, I must have been sort of probably subliminally conscious of doing that, and that's why I brought it into the Born Little Schoolgirl as well. Mm. And we had not trouble, we, well, I was going to say we had trouble recording Help Me. I mean, we ended up having to play, we played in near darkness when we did the track tape because we were trying to get the atmosphere of a club hmm. without an audience in the studio, you know, which was not easy. And with Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, we did that in, um, I've forgotten the name of the studio. It was in Cricklewood. Anyway, it'll probably come back to me when I least need it. And we set up in one corner with the with the drum kit because was um, it Morgan Studios? It was Morgan. Well done. Yes, thank you. And we set up the drum kit in a in a corner, and then that way they they could put screens at either side of it. And then as you looked at the kit, there was a gap between the screens where the bass drum was. Mm. And on stage, Leo and Alvin used to do the the guitar bass battle across my bass drum. And all I, I used to just keep the bass drum going all the time through their solo session. And we did the same in the studio. And then that, that gave us the ability to capture it as near as damn it in, in the live style. Because you've not got that ambience yeah. in the studio that you've got in the, in, in, in a live gig. You've got no atmosphere of the, of the audience, you know. There's no sort of natural echoes. You you have to create the the echoes electronically. It's it's quite it was quite hard certainly in those days to 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 get that to get the feel into it you know in the way that you would live. Mm. 
Um, but we we did manage it. I, I I feel I'm pretty confident we we did that on the Shush album. Mm -hmm. And the lads ended up doing the guitar battle in, in a sense across the bass drum because of the way we'd set up the kit in the in the studio.
now the uh, culmination of from Headstocks to Woodstock is obviously Woodstock, <laughs> and uh, watching the the film and what was going down there, and ten years after, I'm going home. What a performance by the band at what really is the the greatest festival of all time. I mean, in the book, you you vividly described what going over there, the the rain. Etc. Are you able to just give a bit of a flavour of what it was like at playing at Woodstock? Um, well, we were due to go on in the afternoon, and in fact, I remember sitting on the stage and watching Joe Cocker do his set, which was fabulous as always. Mm. And then we were supposed to go on, and then all of a sudden, we found out that um, Johnny Winter had decided to go on. Oh, okay. So uh, wait for him, and then I think the storm came up uh, not long after that. Uh, I'm not sure on the chronology mm. nowadays. It came up very quickly, and it was quite violent. It was like a mini a mini hurricane, I guess. Um, and there is a clip in the in the movie of a of a young kid running to the camera and saying, "This has been created by the government. The government don't want this sized crowd. They they're worried. They don't know how mm. to control it. So they've got planes mm. up there that have peppered the clouds and made them force this storm." As we know from uh, time to time in the past when there's been very dry periods in America, and I believe in Russia as well, they, they've been up and they spray the clouds with, with something which causes rain. And so you can, to a degree, you can save crops that are dying from lack of moisture. Yeah. And this kid was in, in a sense referring to that, but he was convinced it was a government uh, conspiracy or movement to try and quell this crowd of 300,000 plus people, you know, they, he had the view that they were trying to usurp the, the government of America. Mm. So I'm not, not sure whether that's true, but yeah, the storm came, as you can see in the film, it came up very quickly. There was no cover on the stage, hmm. just two bits of tarpaulin flapping in the breeze um, between the two towers, which when you look at it again, they were very, very weak. I mean, looking at it now it's surprising that they held the uh the pa speakers for as long as they did without collapsing mm. because there were there have been festivals since which have been really well built and they've had problems they've had collapses in those when there have been storms you know so um, but it, it, it the storm passed again as quickly in the sense that it came up it wasn't it didn't last very long but there were, you know there was torrential rain and, and very high winds and we ended up, we sheltered in, in the back of the equipment trucks. But the stage was completely live after that because obviously the water had gone on the stage, got into all the electrics because there was inadequate cover on the stage. And um, it took about, I think, probably an hour, maybe two hours, maybe longer to make the stage safe um, and be absolutely certain that nobody was going to get an electric shock and die. And Country Joe was great because he said, well, the kids are out there. They're, they're, they're soaking wet. They've got nothing to eat, you know, because um, this was the last day of the festival. He said, I'm going to go on and, and we're going to do some. He said, well, you can't go on and play electrically. You know, we're not, we won't allow that. He said, well, I'll go, we'll go on acoustically then. So he and the band went on and did an acoustic set. Um, and then they threw out some, uh, some, some food and I think chocolate bars and one thing or another. And then, <laughs> unfortunately, the guitarist decided that the kids could probably do with a beer, so he threw out some beer cans, and one of them hit somebody on the head, so they then started throwing the cans back again. 
wasn't exactly the ideal situation. It was a beer can fight going on between the audience and the band. But um, it was good. It, it kept the morale of the audience up. Um, and there were helicopters at one point flying over, dropping food parcels to um, to everybody. And uh, reading things, when I researched stuff for the book, I was reading other books about Woodstock. And apparently, if you had a sandwich or whatever, you took a bit and then passed it on because, mm. you know, not everybody was catching the, the sandwich boxes or whatever. Woodstock was the the, the only festival, in my opinion, that, that did what it said on the tin. You know, it was love, peace and music. And for three days, well, longer, because people got there earlier than the actual first day and they left after the third day, lived together mm. In harmony, you know, the, the, I believe, I don't think there was one violent incident from what I can make out. It may be because they were pretty stoned, but, you know, even so, living there for three days and, and you know, if you wanted to get out to go to the loo, I mean, it must have been hell getting out and then trying to get back to where you were before. It, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a major city, you know, mm. um, and, and it was... The lessons were there for all of us to be able to live in harmony and peace, you know. It's just gone again. Um, there have been bigger festivals and stuff, but they've not ever, I don't think, had the feel that Woodstock had. That's what Woodstock yeah. had. And uh, anyway, getting back to the show, we, we, finally, we finally got on about 10 o'clock at night, and it was still damp from the storm. I mean, it had been sunshine again, but it was still damp. Because obviously, on a summer's evening, when, when the sun goes down, you get dampness anyway. And uh, we started Good Morning Little Schoolgirl four times. if Because uh, we had to keep retuning, the guitars wouldn't stay in tune. Yeah. So, um, and in those days, there were no electronic tuners. So Alvin used to tune it by ear. He had, he had pitch pipes, like you would have for a violin in, the, uh, you know, in those days. And uh, he would blow the pitch parts, get get his pitch for his um, his strings, right. then tune the guitar, and then he would put the headstock of Leo's guitar in his ear, hmm. and uh, and he would tune Leo's Leo's bass, and then they would play an arpeggio or broken chords, um, and Leo would do the same, and then they, that way they would check that it was in tune, and we had to do that four times. And as I say, in a small club or something, you can, you can get away with it because you can take your oh, sorry, but just bear with us a bit. We'll just get into it and then we'll get on with it. But it's kind of unnerving when you've got 300,000 people at mm. minimum in front of you. And they've been there three days, so you just don't know what the reaction is going to be, you know. Uh, but they were fantastic. They, they just stayed with us. The spirit was so good. I remember before we actually, you know, when we got on stage and before the first number started which was spoonful that you know i was nervous as hell you know I, I, was, I was literally shaking until alvin played those first notes and then i was fine and i think we were all the same you know because it, it, it's the biggest crowd we'd ever played to anywhere you know it was incredible and we got a fantastic ovation at the end of it and um and Alvin got the the famous um, watermelon, huge great thing, which he put on his shoulder and carried off. But I have no idea what happened to it after we got off stage. And I remember seeing D'Anthony took it off him just as he was leaving the stage, but where it went after that, I don't know. We couldn't. We went in with a medic um, in the helicopter. We went in by helicopter because it was the only way he'd get in. 
and everybody just left their cars on the highway for about six miles. Um, we went in the helicopter and we had a medic with us and he said, whatever you do when you get there, don't drink anything out of a can that's not sealed and don't eat anything that's not been yeah. cooked because we've got hepatitis breaking out and we could be heading for an epidemic, which would be horrendous. So when we got there, I mean, we'd, we'd flown in from St. Louis that morning and the only thing we'd had to eat was on the plane. And so there we are about two, three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, had nothing to eat. And when we got there, then the storm came and of course it knocked out all the electric so we couldn't get anything Gosh. cooked. And I never found a can that wasn't already open. So never had anything to eat or drink until about one o'clock the next morning. Getting out of there was uh, was was fun. We found a limousine driver. I said, can you get us out of here? He said, well, I can if you can find a way out. So, oh, okay. So anyway, I managed to find a state trooper on his horse. And I said, is there a way out of here? He said, yeah, there is. But he said, you've got to be so careful. He said, it's, uh, it's quite away from here, probably about two miles. He said, well, I can show you a way to the road. He said, but you've got to be very, very careful because there are people asleep in between the tents, you know, where we're going to drive. The, the people are obviously stoned, you know. Um, he said, you've got to be careful not to pull out the guy ropes or run over them with the car of the tents. So he said, if you're prepared to do it and do it really carefully, then, then I can show you the way. So I went back to the car and I said to the guy, I've got this trooper to take us out. The, some of the guys in the band were, were a little bit paranoid about a state trooper. They thought they were going to get arrested for smoking dope. Mm. And um, I, I said, don't be stupid. I don't think he's he's going to go around and arrest 300,000 people. <laughs> so anyway, we, and the, the limo driver found another car. And so we had the two cars. So we went in convoy behind the state trooper on the horse hmm. uh, at a real snail's pace. And we were weaving in and out of the tents and having to stop every now and again to ask people to get up so we could get through. And but everybody was fine. You know, there were there was nobody grumpy or annoyed or angry. We we just lived together and it was it was fantastic. And when we got to back to um the Holiday Inn, which is called Tranquility Base, we went in and we said uh, to the guy, Have you got a restaurant? He said, Yeah, it's up there, pointed and everybody ran off. He said, and I but I waited because I could kind of tell he had something else to say. And he said, but it's closed. Mm. <clears throat> so everybody came running back to the desk. I said, well, is there anywhere we can get in to eat? And he said, yeah, there's a diner up the road. Just go up the street, you'll see the light at the top. Everybody rushed up there, there's no tomorrow. <laughs> and we got into the diner. And the writers said, oh, how many are there? And we said, there's all about 12 of us, you know, because we had the crew with us, we had wives and girlfriends and stuff. And um, anyway, put all the tables together, got us comfortable. He said, so what do you want to eat? And we all went, everything, because <laughs> we're so hungry, you know. Um, and then we set off back down after that. We set off back down to New York in our own cars, which had been waiting for us. Uh, we got back to New York at about five or six in the morning, I think it was. And they sold the hotel rooms. But um, our managers man managed to find somewhere else, so we were okay. But, you know, as I said, the abiding memory is is of... An amazing event, an amazing event, which has not really been surpassed ever since in terms of its um, cultural effect, I think. Mm. Uh, we did 
we did the uh, Atlanta Pop Festival and the Texas Pop Festival not long after that. And you could tell that, you know, the money men had moved in. They, they, they could see there was money to be made at these festivals from having large gatherings of people. Um, but, yeah, Woodstock was a one-off, for sure. The affinity and the involvement with the crowd and the band was just sort of magic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it was true of all of them. Mm. Everybody had a great communication. I don't think there was any band that went down better than any other, you know. Mm. I mean, Hendrix did an amazing job, you know, at six o'clock in the morning to um, when the sun was coming up. Super, mm. yeah. Are you aware and are involved uh, with the recent announcement to, to release all the uh, recorded material for Woodstock? Yeah, there are negotiations going on at the moment. Chrysalis want to put out our, our set as an album, but um, <clears throat> they're having to discuss it. Warner's, Warner's own the rights to all the recordings of everybody, and they want to put out a, an album with you know one track of each band on it, like like the original mm. album. So there's negotiations going on to try and get all that squared. And I think, I don't think there's a lot of money paid. Well, certainly I don't think we got paid for the recordings in the early days. We, we've had some royalties from it, but from the film, I don't think anybody got paid, although I did hear that one act had, had managed to get a retrospective settlement from the film company. But... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so negotiations are going on, and hopefully we'll have something together before August, mm. which is the 50th anniversary, of course. And you may have read in the press as well that Michael Lang's been trying to put a festival together, but I don't think they're going to get the money for it. And on the original site, that's owned by Bethel um, Arts and Music uh, Society, and they built a stage there, a concrete stage, with uh, 17,000 all weather seating. Um, and then they, they were going to do an anniversary and they realized that there were going to be more than 17,000 people turn up. Um, so they backed off that. They're doing, they're doing Santana and the Doobie Brothers on the, on the 16th, which is, which is the actual date, you know, that we played there. That stage and the, the, and all the seating and stuff are on the other side of the hill from where we, we did the original festival. And they've got turnstiles up at the top, and they've got a museum there, and it's it's all become rather commercial compared to how it was in 1969. So there won't be an anniversary on the actual site, as such, other than Carlos is doing it, which is great. Um, doing we're doing two commemorative shows, one in North Carolina and one in in Florida, and then we're doing some other dates with uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Uh, Corky Lang's Mountain and uh, Vanilla Fudge, although Vanilla Fudge had nothing to do with Woodstock. Um, and that's called a Rock Legends Tour. So um, so we're going to do, I think we're doing six or eight dates with them. And then we're <clears throat> doing quite a few club gigs of our own as well. So it should be it should be a good trip. Looking forward to it. That's with the current lineup of the band. Uh, you know, it'd be remiss of me to just... Uh ask you about uh you know 10 years after in 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 2019 um you know um and you're still playing live and uh recording new material absolutely we've got uh, a new live album coming out in june with a bit of luck the vinyl is already being uh, manufactured as we speak uh, i've just got to get the cd ready to go 
and we're releasing our last studio album and the new album, which is called Naturally Live, together in America because um, uh, Sting in the Tail, which is the studio album, that wasn't released there yet. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's only been available on import. So we're going to release the two together to go with the tour. And then we're touring quite a lot in the autumn with Canned Heat in Europe. Um, so we'll have the album, the, the live album available for them. And yeah, we should mention the lineup. We, we currently have Marcus Bonfanti on guitar and vocals, who is absolutely stunning. Um, so, and it's great to work with him as well. He's such a guy, nice guy. And uh, Colin Hodgkinson, a uh, famous bass player, uh, very, very lucky and honoured to have both yeah. of them with us. Colin was with um, Spencer Davis and uh, with Whitesnake. Alexis Corner when he first started out. Yeah, you name it, Colin's played with them. And he's fabulous. And he's also a fabulous guy. Mm. And then, of course, uh, my dear old mate for many years, Chick Churchill on, on keyboards. So just keep... Yeah, it's good. And the band is, I think, I think you know, the band is a very happy band. We play great, really good together and we, we just enjoy life. It's really good. Basically, people need to go to the uh, 10 yeah. Years After website to hear about uh, the current lineup and, and, and those albums and live shows. And Correct. I think... And from Headstocks to Woodstock is available from your own website? I think it's it's rickleetya.com. You can order it through. But I've just done a deal, and it's going into the book trade uh, in about two weeks' time. Yeah. So it will be available then through uh, Waterstones and Hatchards and all the major bookstops, Smiths. Um, and it's also it will be available through Amazon at that point. So uh, it'll tie in nicely with, with the lead up to Woodstock. Brilliant. Uh, oh, I, I know what I want to tell you. Is we're, we're, playing one, we're playing one UK date, which is unusual. We don't play a lot. But we're doing Hampton Pool on the 20th of July. Hampton Pool in London, 20th of July. And uh, we're co-headlining with the Blues Band. Hmm. And it's sold out. <laughs> so I don't know if people want to try and get any returns or anything, but I think that would be the way to get a ticket if you want one. Well, almost 50 years since Woodstock, but you're still going strong. <laughs> keep on going. Thank you. Well, I'll keep, I'll keep taking the tablets, yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much, Rick. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Jason. No, it's been my pleasure. It's lovely. My Thank pleasure. You. All right, then. Take care. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, and you. All the best. All right, and Cheers. you too. Bye-bye. Bye.
Babe, I'm coming to get you one more time. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast, and hosting fees are increasing over time. 
All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.